This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 31, Between a Taper and a Hike Pace, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Kierens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our debate of the main narratives that are dominating market pricing and what these themes imply for U.S. rates, high-quality spreads, and foreign exchange. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Since our last podcast on August 3rd, 10-year Treasury yields are about 20 basis points higher, with the latest move sparked by the August non-farm payrolls data, which of course was well below expectations, in addition to the rapidly spreading Delta variant. The price action in tens is continuing this morning, with yields about 5 basis points higher. So we have slower growth resulting in higher yields, which seems counterintuitive. But this is a market playbook that we've seen before. Bad news is good news because it impacts the Fed's reaction function. Over the past several weeks, the Fed has done a decent job setting up tapering, caveated by the evolution of the economic data. They clearly laid the groundwork so that the market would be prepared if they needed to taper earlier than expected. Friday's job miss takes an earlier taper off the table, but leaves November and December in play. The timing of the November 3rd meeting is two days before the release of the October payroll data, but ADP employment and ISM for October will be known. So market pricing will continue to be all about the data on the ground versus the risks presented by the extended pandemic timeframe. So let's kick it off with Ian. Ian, At Jackson Hole, Chair Powell stated his view that the substantial further progress test has been met for inflation, and also he stated that there had been clear progress toward maximum employment. What he didn't say is that the substantial further progress test has been met for employment. The employment data has been choppy, and it's not that long ago that a 200,000 print would have been viewed positively. So now we have the taper test for inflation met, clear progress on employment, and a positive print. Will positive prints in the 200 to 300K range really derail tapering, or do they need to get moving on this front due to inflation and with a potential fiscal package in the offing? Well, Margaret, my takeaway is that the Fed has done a brilliant job of separating the parameters for tapering from the parameters for the first rate hike. And what we have seen over the course of the last several weeks from the Fed and as interpreted from the market's response is that investors understand this and they're expecting the Fed to follow through with tapering with an announcement either in November to be implemented 
implemented in December or December to be implemented at the beginning of the year. And the focus at this stage is all about the timing of the liftoff rate hike. And you can see that as it plays out in the belly of the curve, the five-year sector in particular. And when we looked at the response on the part of the U.S. rates market to the August non-farm payrolls print, what we saw was what I'll characterize as a flashback to the beginning of the year when the assumption was that moderate to reasonable jobs growth and higher realized inflation would leave the Fed on hold longer under the paradigm of the new framework, and in doing so, re-steepen the curve. So we've seen a mini re-steepening with, as you pointed out, Margaret, with 10-year yields now well over 20 basis points off the lows. The next question becomes, are the realized gains in average hourly earnings going to continue to drive this stagflation light narrative, which we expect will simply weigh on consumption as the market recalibrates between now and the end of the year? So specifically to your point, I struggle to see any non-farm payrolls prints between now and November or December that would derail tapering. But if the labor market isn't able to regain some of the momentum, then a 2022 rate hike will certainly be off the table. And in terms of what to look for over the balance of this year, Ian, I completely agree that the area of the curve that's going to be most relevant to watch is probably going to be the five-year sector. Given the belly's sensitivity to collective liftoff expectations, it's really going to need to be a function of the realized data now that we've gotten through the summer period, some of the base effects relating to the early days of the pandemic have begun to work themselves out, and we're presumably reaching a more normalized labor market environment, that the Fed is going to be especially attuned to how the economy is performing. Now, Ian and Margaret, you both touched on the fact that at this point, tapering is going to be announced before the end of the year. In a client survey before the August jobs numbers, we saw roughly 52% expect that that announcement will take place at the November meeting. But that certainly doesn't mean that the incoming inflation and jobs numbers can't move the needle on the expectation on liftoff, which at this point is a late 2022 or early 2023 question. Ben, I think this offers a good point to transition and talk about credit spreads. We're anticipating that with credit, the current range in spreads is going to hold in the near term. And that's largely because we're expecting a low rate and potentially low volatility environment to persist into the fall. We saw a modest backup in credit spreads this summer, and that widening totaled just about 10 basis points. While that move was due in part to growth concerns stemming from covid there was certainly a strong technical element to that move with heavy vacations and light investor activities, which we typically see leading to some weakness in credit spreads in August. But the story now is going to be about supply, at least for the next two weeks. This morning, we see 22 high-grade corporate borrowers in the U.S. dollar market. That's the most of any single day on record. It's more than we ever saw during the 2020 unprecedented wave of supply. But we're expecting that this heavy issuance is going to be well absorbed by the market, given that the investor base is likely well positioned to take down this supply as they typically are during this period of heavy issuance in September. And then after supply, it's likely that the focus in credit markets is going to be about the degree of continued fiscal support into year end. Another question that we'll be looking to answer is, when does the market start to feel the technical impact of Fed tapering? We've not been expecting anything like a taper tantrum to take hold here, 
But there will be pressure on credit spreads as the Fed's MBS and Treasury purchases are eventually forced to clear the market without the Fed's support. And that could crowd out private funding and lead to some weakness in credit spreads. Only this is likely to be a later 2022 story. Moving north of the border, the end of summer doesn't only mean that markets are going to be more active. We also have a federal election on tap on September 20th. That likely doesn't have huge macro implications given the way things are shaping out at the moment. Right now, the polls are, are pretty much a dead heat or, or maybe slightly in favor of, of the uh, Liberal Party at the moment against the Conservatives, uh, with the NDP and, and Bloc Québécois well behind. Uh, at this moment, it looks as though we're going to get another minority government in Canada. So all of the headlines you get about policies that the parties want to put in place, probably not going to happen, at least not the way that they've laid them out at the moment. Uh, everything will likely be watered down to some extent, but uh, you never know. I mean, there, there is still some odds we could get a, a majority, maybe the Liberals slightly more likely, but the momentum is on the Conservative side. So I mean, I wouldn't rule that out either, but for now, it does look like a minority government of either the Conservatives or the Liberals, and, and really that's a toss-up at the moment. But again, the macro impact will probably be pretty limited on that front. We also get the Bank of Canada early in September here. It's, it's actually going to be uh, September 8th tomorrow. And because of the election, nothing really is expected. And, and so it's just kind of a, a wait-and-see event for them as, as they don't really want to get involved in politics at all. Given the likely minimal impact of the election at this point. It shouldn't impact policy moving forward. And even if there were a change in government, we wouldn't really get a big fiscal shift or any real big fiscal information for at least a few months. So don't expect any uh, changes on that front to uh, impact rates or Bank of Canada policy, at least for a while. While there won't be likely much impact uh, from a rate perspective from the election, there have been some pretty big macro data over the past couple of weeks in Canada. We got a second quarter GDP number that was surprisingly negative, and you can contrast that with significantly better numbers through pretty much the rest of the world, as Canada felt the third wave of COVID probably a little more than most there. And just kind of compounding that negative, the flash estimate for July GDP was negative as well. And so the Bank of Canada was looking for plus 2% in Q2. That was minus 1.1, so a three percentage point miss there. For Q3, they were looking for seven and a quarter percent that's going to get cut at least in half. So you're looking at materially weaker growth relative to what the Bank of Canada was forecasting. The October NPR is still a long ways away, but it is likely that they'll have to cut their growth forecast pretty notably. And that could push out the timing of the output gap. That could delay tapering as well, which pretty much everyone has penciled in for October. So things have gotten a little bit more interesting in Canada at this point from a rate perspective. I think I'd like to wait to see a little bit more data just because StatsCan has been uh, prone to some sizable revisions of late. So you never know, maybe that July number changes in a more positive manner. We'll have to wait and see. But for now, again, I would say my bias would be for Canada, maybe outperform a little bit near term, but we'll see what the election brings out and, and we'll see what the Bank of Canada has to say later this week. Finally, while I'm not expecting any big rate moves to come out of the election, we could see a little bit more action on the currency front, but I'll leave that to you, Greg. Ben, on the topic of dollar Canada volatility, we certainly got it in August, and I guess maybe some of that was election related. We'll point out that on the date that the election basically rolled into the one month forward window is when we got the most extreme movement in both uh, dollar CAD spot as well as one month implied vols certainly seemed like a big segment of the market was putting on hedges in, in dollar Canada, long dollar CAD at that instance. 
But that move also kind of mirrored what was going on in the broader US dollar index. So a big spike and what looked like a breakout to new highs for the year in various different implementations of dollar indices. And then that breakout, it fizzled. And you on various different axes, such as euro dollar, exciting levels were breached. And then all of a sudden the, the move died. And perhaps we can attribute a little bit of that to, I don't know, Powell disappointment that he wasn't as hawkish as maybe the minutes had set up in some people's minds. But I'm not sure that that's entirely it. It just the move lost momentum. Well, Greg, that's an interesting comment about the faults breakout on the top side in the dollar. I think we have to look at the China angle, as is almost always the case. When we look at the dollar-China exchange rate, what does it tell us about policymakers and their reaction function and their intentions right now? I think they would prefer to keep dollar-China parked in the 640s. That accomplishes a couple of things for them. Number one, it reduces volatility in the exchange rate to virtually nothing. But two, I think this is more of a sentiment thing. By keeping dollar China in the 640s, policymakers are removing depreciation pressure from EM currencies against the Chinese yuan. And I think that's helpful for EM sentiment. And that is also an inhibiting factor for dollar strength right now. The fact that EM sentiment or EM currency sentiment uh, could be worse, but it's not because of the influence that China has over the exchange rate. And you know what? Maybe it's worth just giving the euro a small mention. If you look at the euro dollar chart, we bounced nicely off that 117 level a couple of weeks ago or so. And that pretty much coincided with euro China, euro CNH that is bouncing off the 760 level. So again, I think we see plausible evidence here that Chinese policymakers have been tempering appreciation of the yuan. I guess to finish off, the only thing I would say that makes me a little bit uneasy about this 640, 650 range in dollar China is that if we're sort of not much higher than 645 by the time of the September FOMC, and the Fed delivers a dovish rate decision or a dovish message later this month, I think it's going to be tough for policymakers to prevent a break of 640 in dollar China. I don't think they particularly want it now, but that 640 level is going to be very important in terms of how the Fed feeds into the situation. Thank you, Greg and Stephen. We have covered quite a variety of topics in today's podcast. And as we've said, our base case for tapering continues to be an announcement later this year. But let's do a quick rapid fire on outlook for rates and spreads and currencies in the, in the different sectors that we cover. Just to sum up today's recording, I will start it off with Ian. I think that the biggest takeaway for the Treasury market from the recent events is that we're going to continue to be in a range and we're about to enter a period where the new upper bound is reestablished as we make it through the Delta variant and we get a better sense of the Fed's reaction function to the mixed data with inflation still in the system, but jobs growth showing signs of flagging, at least at this stage. So our net takeaway is more of the same within a range, not a trending market, but that's to be expected given where we are in the cycle. And that really leaves the most relevant price action over the balance of this year in the belly of the curve. 
we've reached the point where tapering is now nearly a foregone conclusion to be announced in the next several months. And from that perspective, it's going to be liftoff assumptions and whether or not the first rate hike of this cycle will be in late 2022 or early 2023 that will offer the most sustainable price action in treasuries at this point. With respect to credit, we're expecting a very supportive environment for credit spreads into year end, given the continued fiscal and monetary support, which we're expecting to bring more range-bound trading like Ian and Ben just talked about, which could bring a resumption of the yield grab trading environment. We're expecting credit spreads will retest historical tights around year end, and we're targeting 75 basis points in the Bloomberg Barclays Index. Up in Canada, uncertainty is the name of the game pretty much for the rest of the year. We have an election in a few weeks, and uh, again, an uncertain outlook for who's going to win on that front, but likely a minority government, uh, no matter who wins. Meantime, we're still dealing with fourth wave coming here. Case loads are rising. That clearly had an impact on the second quarter. Uh, And it's a a pretty big uncertainty whether that's going to dampen growth through the rest of 2021 and into 2022. Ian mentioned staying within a range in fixed income. And I would just say that our range in FX is narrower than your range. For the dollar index, we've basically been 5% wide thus far this year. And uh, I don't think we will break either edge of that. And where we're, call it a percent and a half away from the top of the range to put a a year-end call smack dab in the middle would be U.S. dollar index down a half a percent to a percent. I think that would be my best call for right now for year-end with CAD probably outperforming that a little bit. So, you know, I'd call it 1% strength. And then the other uh, outperformer that I would point to, New Zealand dollar, should have rallied more this year thus far than it has. I still think it's got that potential by the time we get through the end of the year. Greg, I, I don't see massive volatility coming in either dollar China or euro dollar. No surprise there. Naturally, a lot is going to depend on the Fed's approach to its normalization cycle, the taper and so on, as has already been mentioned. But looking specifically at euro and RMB, I think short euro on a number of non-dollar crosses is going to remain a preferred carry trade during periods of rising risk appetite. So how that translates over to euro dollar, I think 119, 120 in euro dollar is pretty toppy for that currency pair. I don't like taking big exposures in dollar RMB, but if I had to pick one, it would probably be to fade dollar China strength in the high 640s. Look for opportunities to get short of the dollar up there. Okay, and that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 31 between a taper and a hike pace. As always, please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.